All right, would you take your Bibles and turn to <clears throat> Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. We are going to be in a couple of places, but this is going to be the passage that we uh, kind of look at specifically this morning. You know, today is the last Sunday in the season after Epiphany, referred to as Transfiguration Sunday. And um, then Ash Wednesday begins this Wednesday, and we'll have uh, a time together, if you're available and want to, in the youth room at 7 on Wednesday. That'll give folks who are helping with a food pantry and clothes closet and such to wind that up if they want to participate with this. About 30 minutes is what we'll be together on Wednesday. So if you're afraid the preacher's going to take that as an opportunity to keep you till 9, he's not. And uh, so we invite you there, and then we start the Christian season of, of Lent with uh, next Sunday. Would you follow along with me in Matthew 17, verse 1? <clears throat> Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured, metamorphosed before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. And suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you one for Moses and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up. And do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. I don't know if you saw it, but in a game just a week or two ago, LeBron James scored more than 36 points on the Thunder. Just a day at the office for LeBron. He is now the all-time points leader in the National Basketball Association. I realize some of you are like, so what? But stay with me. Since that game, fans have revived the question of who is the greatest NBA player of all time. James or Jordan? We love comparisons as much as we love our greats. Would you pray with me? Lord God, who compares to you? When Peter, James, and John stood watching on Mount Tabor, were they concerned about which of the three figures they saw was the greatest? Or were they honest about the paths of Moses and Elijah? 
to know that your majestic glory broke through to reveal what Athanasius wrote long ago, that you became human so that we might become divine. Remind us what Peter said, and remind us repeatedly that it is good for us to be with you. So may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, majestic glory, our light and our hope, and all God's people say. You know, thinking of comparisons, there's one going on right now. It's pretty public. In, in, uh, in Kentucky, in Wilmore, Kentucky, uh, a revival has broken out at uh, a little Methodist college, Asbury College. If you go to the Asbury College website, you find this. On February the 3rd, 1970, Dean Custer B. Reynolds, scheduled to speak in chapel, felt led to invite persons to give personal testimony instead. Many on campus had been praying for spiritual renewal and were now in an, in an expectant mood. Soon there was a large group waiting in line to speak. A spirit of powerful revival came upon the congregation. The chapel was filled with rejoicing people. Classes were canceled for a week during the 144 hours of unbroken revival. But even after classes resumed on February the 10th, Hughes Auditorium was left open for prayer and testimony. These sessions were presided over by Reynolds, Clarence Hunter, and other faculty. Some 2,000 witness teams went out from Wilmore to churches and at least 130 college campuses around the nation. One of the many news outlets available today has reported a similar event taking place at the same small college. The news reports it this way. It began on February the 8th as a normal church service. According to Asbury College, students and leaders, a gospel choir sang at the end of the service, and some students stuck around afterward. The nascent gathering got attention on social media with content about the meeting racking up millions of views as the days passed. Videos on TikTok and Instagram show people swaying to worship music, weeping, repenting their sins, and encouraging the testimonies of their fellow attendees. The interesting question being asked is this, what is going on at Asbury College? What is going on? I mean, if you recall, I mean, some of you were here in 1970. Maybe not here, but you were around in 1970. And you know that there was no such thing as TikTok or Instagram. The idea of social media was a newspaper. If anything went viral, it was on the phone. Well, and plenty of that wouldn't happen, right? I mean, answers to the question... What is going on at Asbury have led to comparisons between these two events that are separated by more than 40 years. And, as you would imagine, some find great similarities between the two events. Others? Others are withholding judgment until more may be observed. And that doesn't begin to describe the response from onlookers who are not or are no longer Christian. I remember a trip our family took to Dallas when 
we were just boys. We visited a school bank depository in Dallas. And among all the information about the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, one display has still kind of captured my imagination. It was a chart, one of those big charts. And on that chart were the similarities between the assassinations of President Abraham Lincoln and President Robert F. Kennedy. Those similarities have fueled conspiracy theories since at least 1963. I hate to tell you, I know exactly how many years that is. The only conspiracy at work in the similarities between the mountaintop experiences of Moses and Elijah and Jesus is a divine conspiracy. That in God's freedom, God conspires to be God not without us. And in that desire, God becomes like us so that we might become like Him. Or put another way, God comes to be with us, and as Peter said, it is good for us. Moses on Sinai, Elijah on Mount Carmel, and Jesus on Mount Tabor. I mean, those are sort of the three events that that really probably a, a... a young Jewish student, a, a young Jewish learner, a young Jewish family would have kind of maybe caught in their imagination when they were hearing the Gospel of Matthew read. They would have recalled some of the details. I mean, after all, one of the underlying emphases of Matthew's Gospel is that Jesus is greater than Moses. I mean, really, Matthew wants to write his gospel to let us know that Jesus is greater than all of our heroes. But one thing for sure is, is if you're writing to a a Jewish audience and, and you want to make sure they understand that someone's greater than the lawgiver, you better make your case. You better make a good argument. And so when crafting the details of the transfiguration, the metamorphosis of Jesus... I mean, it's hard to avoid the comparisons between Mount Sinai and Mount Tabor. I mean, here's just a list of some of the things they share in common. If we were to have that big board, Mount Tabor and Mount Sinai, something like that big board that displayed the similarities between the assassinations of Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy, this is what we might read. Both events are said to have occurred six days later on a mountain with a special group where Moses and Jesus both are described in glory, having been seen with shining faces and shining skin, taken in by a bright cloud, hearing a voice from the cloud, and fear fear gripped those who were standing by. I mean, at least seven elements of these two stories should cause us to take notice. If Matthew's gospel is intent to convey that there's something greater about Jesus than Moses, it stands to reason that you would draw as many parallels as possible so that on the other side you could make the declaration, you could prove your point, you could make the case that Jesus is greater. If we are to seize on human greatness, Matthew would say, then we better settle on Jesus. 
There shouldn't be any contest. There shouldn't be any question. There shouldn't be any doubt. But we look back over the story and we can read about Moses' exploits. I mean, after all, he is God's representative to be the liberator of his people out of Egypt. I mean, who can argue with the miracles that Moses did to try to convince Pharaoh to let God's people go? I mean, not just the ten. There were a couple of things that happened kind of leading up to it as if to say, Pharaoh, like, I'm, I'm, I'm a deal here. God's with me, and like, you probably should be paying attention here. One by one, Pharaoh responded to the plagues with, at first, agreement, and then, dis- and then disallowed it until finally the end. But, but Moses also was impatient. And I know we probably shouldn't make patience a matter of our morals or our ethics or any standard we should live by. After all, we are the most patient people already, right? But he was impatient. And it was actually Moses' impatience with the Lord that prohibited him from actually entering the promised land rather than just seeing it from a mountaintop. You remember the story? And actually, it's a couple of stories from his past, from his leadership. Israel, you know, all often found complaining in the Scriptures about what they didn't have, forgetting what they did have. They needed some water. And so what did God tell Moses to do? He happens upon a rock. God says, take your staff and strike the rock. And he struck that rock, and guess what came out? You remember the story? Water. Water from a rock. I mean, if we can't think back to those events and think, oh, wait a minute. I mean, Jesus is living water. And if we Christians want to go back and read these stories, we probably could say that, like, we might read that as a hint. We might go back and read that as, Wow, the people, they were parched, they were wandering, they were aimless. And they hadn't yet learned the prayer, give us this day our daily bread, which really could be paraphrased to give us today what we need, and they needed water. And here he is, God giving the illustration, he gives them water from a rock. As you imagine, they travel along a little bit, maybe years, who knows, and they arrive at another place. Again, parched, wandering, bedraggled, thirsty. Moses, did you bring us out here to die? Moses talks to God and says, man, these people, they are Grinches. Nothing makes them happy. How's that, Marley? that work? Yeah. And so God tells Moses... There's a rock. Moses goes, ooh, I have this memory. But this time God says, speak to the rock. Speak to the rock? Last time I hit it, got water. So he spoke to the rock, and the water didn't immediately flow. 
because it didn't happen as fast as he wanted because he had rubbed the bottle and Jeannie didn't come out? He decides, I know what to do. I hit the rock once, I'll hit the rock again. Whew. He hit the rock the first time because God said, strike the rock and the water will come. And this time he said, speak to the rock and the water will come. And when it didn't happen like he wanted, he struck the rock and God, mm, no. Not too happy with your impatience, Moses. In fact, because of your lack of trust, your lack of confidence that at the mere word I would do what I said I would do, I'll tell you what, you'll get to see the promised land, but you'll not get to enter it. Impatience. Yet, if we're going to draw a comparison with Jesus, and we know that Jesus understood well what was happening to him, knew well what his future was going to look like, he had heard the rumblings, Mark says, since early days that they wanted to kill him. He knew they didn't like what he represented, like what he offered. They wanted to get rid of him. And despite all of that, what did he do? He remained patient and faithful. If there's a counter, if there's a counter argument to Moses being the greatest, is that it is that Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus didn't exercise a lack of patience. In fact, do you recall a story where it seemed like he had too much? We'll take answers if you've got one to pitch. Isn't the story of Lazarus, Jesus, taking too much time? He knew he was sick and he delayed a couple of days. He was too patient. But yet he arrived and he demonstrated that here's what can happen at the voice of the Lord. Lazarus, come forth. And there he comes. Moses. That great liberator. The one that the people look to and call back to. The one who gave the law. He was not faithful. But yet Jesus proved to be faithful to the end. When we get to Elijah, who was also present on that Mount of Transfiguration, we don't find the same similarities. In fact, we can't find seven of them like we can if we compare what happened on Sinai with what happened on Mount Tabor. But we can draw a comparison between Elijah and Jesus in a different way. In fact, if you remember your story from 1 Kings chapter 18... We find Elijah described this way. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Before Mark is halfway through, before you get to chapter 8, even, even before you get halfway to, of ch to chapter 8 and chapter 4, before you get to chapter 4, Mark reports, The Pharisees went out, and immediately conspired with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. If, if Jesus reminded anyone of Elijah, it may have been because Jesus was troubling Israel. 
are you? You the one who trouble Israel? Here's the difference. The difference that demonstrates that Jesus is greater than Elijah is here in the story. Remember, maybe you do, or this afternoon you could read chapter 18. Elijah presents himself to Ahab and he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a contest. I am weary of you leading the people after Baal. So you get the 400 priests of Baal and you meet me on Mount Carmel. And I'm going to show up and we're going to find out whose God is God by the one who brings fire to fall from heaven. So they get together and they're going to demonstrate who answers by fire is indeed God, the text says. So you get the prophets of Baal, and they're shaking, rattling, and rolling, trying to get Baal's attention, getting him to wake up. If they can't get that bull to kind of pay attention, maybe they can if they shout. And then when the day wore on, it got more and more likely that he wasn't going to respond. They went to the great extreme of cutting themselves and shouting and making a big to-do. And finally, Elijah had seen enough. Baal was asleep. He wasn't waking up. No fire was going to fall. So he says, it's my turn. And he decides to ratchet up the contest. He gets his servants to pour water on top of the animal, on top of the altar, and let it soak in. Not just one time, but three times. Enough water on the animal, enough water on the altar that it filled the trench around it like a moat. And then Elijah prayed, Answer me, O Lord, so that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And what do you know? Fire fell from heaven. Fire consumed the sacrifice on the altar, consumed and lapped up all the water on the stones and all the water in the moat around the altar. It was a clear indication to the prophets and the people, that's it, the prophets of Baal and the people, that Yahweh is indeed God. If the story ends there, if the story ends there, maybe, just maybe, we could say that Jesus and Elijah are running a close race. Jordan or James? Circumstances side by side, which is the greatest? But Elijah does something. Elijah does something different than what Jesus does. Elijah takes those prophets of Baal one by one. And from that little church that sits atop of Mount Carmel, you can see the Wadi Kishon just in the valley. One by one, Elijah took those 400 prophets down to the Wadi Kishon, which is really another way of saying a dry creek bed that's only full of water when the rainy season comes. And he filled the Wadi Kishon with the blood of 400 Baal priests. If you read the story, there is no instruction given to Elijah to do that. No, the Lord said. No, God said. No, hey, way back there when the whole contest is firing up, God said, listen, I want you to do this when it's all over because I'm going to take care of this. Instead, Elijah decided to take vengeance into his own hands. 
He decided to do with his enemies what you and I would prefer all of our enemies done with. When Jesus gave the disciples and those who overheard it what the kingdom of God would look like, do you remember what he said about enemies? You've heard it said, hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew gives us those words. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, the consequence of those who finally had crafted and schemed and skilled to get rid of Jesus, what did Jesus do from the cross? Do you hear him snarling, promising vengeance to his enemies? I think you'll have to read it again. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Oh, not Elijah. (laughs) Not Elijah. I'll show you what we do with our enemies. We fill the wadi with their blood. Jesus? Not so much. So there's a significant difference between Mount Carmel and Mount Tabor. In fact, if we want a better comparison, it may be that we compare Mount Carmel to the hill called Golgotha. But something's happening in the transfiguration for Peter, James, and John. They are finally and clearly seeing that Jesus is who God has revealed him to be. Our reading for this morning from Psalm 2, the psalm that Jeff read earlier, it is a song designed to describe the coronation of a king of Israel. And if you go back this afternoon and you read, read Psalm 2, and you, you find out what's promised in the coronation of a king of Israel and what's to follow, you quickly learn by looking at the history of Israel that there wasn't a king in all of Israel that met those qualifications, that fulfilled the vision that's in Psalm 2. So Israel has always been looking for a king so described. When we get to our reading from 2 Peter, Peter is trying to spar with those who are saying that the promise Jesus has made of his return is just all talk. In fact, some are saying it's already happened. And of all the things that Peter decides to do, he decides to finally let loose his lips about an event that he had never talked about up to that point that we know of. You remember the instructions Jesus gave coming down from Mount Tabor, the Mount of Transfiguration? Don't tell anyone until after what? The resurrection. Don't tell anyone until after the resurrection. So here is Peter, and he's trying to counter the arguments that God is just not the promise-keeping sort of God. And Peter says, wait a minute. 
let me tell you. Let me tell you what we saw that indicates what's coming. And he retold the story. He retold the story of being one of the eyewitnesses. He tells the story about the cloud and the bright light, and he tells the story about the voice. In my translation, it says, the majestic glory spoke from the cloud. After all, that's what they saw. Jesus overwhelmed by glory. You know, uh, there are a lot of things that uh, could have altered Peter's mind along the way in his following Jesus. Not the least of which is when he nearly came to fisticuffs with the Apostle Paul over his um, small matter of uh, um, preferential treatment for his own ethnic group. Uh, but, but Peter seems you know, to be a bit slow on the uptake. And frankly, that's what we hear mostly about Peter, right? Talks too much, doesn't quite get it fast enough. My friend Jason, looking at this passage in Matthew, caught something that I have to confess I haven't seen. I, I thought it was pretty good. Peter says when he sees the three on the Mount of Transfiguration beholding the glory of the Lord, he says, it is good for us to be here. And Jesus doesn't tell him it's not. And nearly every other time someone says something to Jesus, he responds. This is one, maybe the only time in all the Gospels that when spoken to in this way, when something said, he doesn't respond. I don't know how we're supposed to take that silence, but it's probably okay to at least take it as though Jesus agreed with Peter. It's good for us to be together. Because when we're together, that's what changes you. When we're together, that's what changes you. It's not how many laws you can keep. It's not how you can prescribe the behavior of another person. It's when we're together that change you. It's good for us to be together. I know it sounds like a sales pitch for Sunday morning attendance. But what I will say to you is this. That it's pretty clear, it's pretty clear that the transfiguring, the transformation that you and I experience doesn't come by us making a set of rules to keep. It comes when we are glimpsed and glimpse the glory of Jesus. When we find out that Jesus is more faithful than Moses and is patient with all of his enemies. We're transfigured and transformed when we recognize that vengeance doesn't accomplish the will of the Lord, but forgiveness does. What transforms you and me? When we recognize it is good to be with Jesus. Would you pray with me?